We're in our series, As You Go, based on the ISV translation, the Matthew 28, verse 19, and we're doing a second theme for this year that comes out of the book of Matthew entitled, Follow the Master, Disciple Maker, which of course is Jesus Christ. Now, in about three or four weeks, we're going to be doing some some fun uh, test, okay? Uh, we're going to be asking some questions to see how well you're learning the book of Matthew. Uh, but I want to begin that today with a one little bitty test. Based on John's sermon, we're going to see how good John did last week. Okay, wait a minute, let me rephrase that. We're going to see how good you did last week. Okay, John did a great job, we already know that. But John last week, of course, addressed the genealogy of Jesus. And, and I want to ask this question, out of that genealogy, in the genealogy of Jesus, how many women are mentioned? All right, I want you to think about that for a second. Jewish genealogies were nearly always about men, but not Matthew's genealogy. He mentioned some women. How many? Now, notice the word is women, so we know it's more than one, Right? So let me just begin by you raising your hand. By the way, if you get it wrong, don't feel bad. Someone asked me this question. I got it wrong. And, and I, I'm the preacher, okay? So I'm like, wow, yeah, I can't believe I got that one wrong. So here we go. How many of you think there are two women? Two women that are mentioned. Okay, we got a handful. How about three women? Okay, several of you with three. How many four women? All right. How many five women? Six women. Okay. 72 women. No, no, no. All right. Uh, when I was asked that question, I said, well, there were four. I mean, there was, there was uh, Tamar, and then Rahab, and then Ruth, and then the wife of Uriah the Hittite. Four women. And the person who asked me that said, aren't you forgetting the most important one? Who is? Mary. Five women. And so if you said five, you got it right, okay? And so a lot more than I think sometimes we realize. Okay, we are coming, as has already been mentioned, uh, to, to chapter two. But before we do, John last week said, Les, it would have been helpful if we had done an introduction to Matthew. And he was right. And I want to just mention just a very quick point about Matthew's gospel that may help you. If you've ever read through the four Gospels, you notice that Matthew, Mark, and Luke tell the same story. I mean, they tell the same basic Jesus is up in Galilee, he eventually goes to Jerusalem, he dies on the cross. You get this Galilee-Jerusalem theme. You turn over to John, and John presents a very different Gospel. Uh, in fact, the church fathers tell us that John read Matthew, Mark, and Luke and then, as I preached on it back in 2018, John wrote the Paul Harvey gospel, which is the rest of the story. Yes, I'm a, you know, some of you, some of the teenagers are going, Paul who? Yeah, yeah, I get it. Uh, but anyway, John's very different. But Matthew, Mark, and Luke are called synoptic gospels. The word synoptic coming from synonym, meaning they're very alike. And so scholars have been constantly asking, how in the world did these three Gospels get written? How did the Holy Spirit work through humanity, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, to do it? And I'm going to just share with you how I approach the text. These are Les Chapman's opinions, 
Okay? If you differ with them, I didn't even talk to the scholar here, Brother Rodney, find out how he approaches them. But here's my approach. I believe that the first gospel written was Mark at the very top. Uh, Mark is sometimes referred to as Peter's gospel. The church father said that he wrote down Peter's memoirs. I believe that. I believe that Mark's gospel is, in fact, Peter's gospel. Peter, over in 1 Peter chapter 5, calls John Mark his son, very close to him. You see that in the book of Acts as well. I think Matthew then took Mark's gospel, being Peter's gospel, and expanded it. In other words, 16 chapters in Mark's gospel becomes 28 chapters in Matthew's gospel, written for Jews, Jewish believers, Jewish unbelievers. It's a very Jewish gospel. I mean, you start in verse 1. You know, the, the genealogy of Jesus, son of David, son of Abraham. Then I think that Luke comes along and takes both Mark and Matthew and gleans from them as other research he did through the inspiration of the Spirit to write his gospel. And so I see it kind of following the order, Mark first, Matthew, and then Luke. Now, again, there are scholars disagree with me. That's fine. Uh, we'll find out one of these days, right? But that's kind of the way I approach the text. All right, so we come to Matthew chapter 2. Very different than Luke's gospel. you got two birth narratives. We sometimes kind of read them together. We don't need to read them together. William already pointed out a fascinating point. When the, when the Magi show up, they don't go to a stable, they go to a house, which tells you a little bit about what's going on in Matthew's gospel. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea during the time of King Herod, all you have to do is read King Herod and you're like, uh-oh, here we go. Herod's the bad guy. Here's the Darth Vader of Star Wars. I mean, Herod, Herod is, is, is the outlaw in the cowboy, you know, movies. Uh, Herod is Herod the Great in this particular instance. He's going to have several sons who are going to be called Herod as well with other names attached to them. We're going to read in, in the New Testament about his grandson, about his great, great grandson. A lot of people went by the name Herod. Uh, if you go down to North Mississippi to the Ripley area and said, are there any Chapmans around here? You'll hear, oh yeah, you know, you know, most of them are up at the jail, but there's a bunch of them around here. Okay. And, and so just like the Chapman name or your last name, Herod was a family name. Now notice that during the time of King Herod, Magi from the East came to Jerusalem. And they want to know, where's the one who's been born king of the Jews? We've seen his star when it rose, and we have come to worship him. Now, one of the first questions you have to stop and ask is, who in the world are these magi? Uh, king James Version translated as wise men. In fact, most of our English Bibles translated as wise men. Some call them astrologers, political advisors, scholars. Who are these guys that come from the east in search of the one born king of the Jews? And to answer that question, I think you got to go back to the Old Testament to a time of Daniel. Uh, this is when Daniel's called in. Belshazzar sees writing on the wall. It's near the end of the Babylonian Empire. In fact, the very night it collapses. And, and Belshazzar is scared to death when this hand begins to write on the wall. And they come up to him and they said, there's a man in your kingdom 
who has the spirit of the holy gods in him. In the time of your father, he was found to have insight, intelligence, wisdom like that of the gods. Your father, King Nebuchadnezzar, appointed him chief of the magicians, enchanters, astrologers, diviners. In other words, in the ancient world, kings would gather around them people who supposedly had these special insights. They could divine things. They could look at the stars and read the signs in the stars. Some of them were known as as magicians. And all of them were used to advise the royal, royal family, you know, as to what was fixing to happen. Daniel had been carried as a as an exile to Babylon. He had been introduced into this group, and God working through him, he had risen to the top. He's over all of them. In fact, it's not just during the Babylonian time. I mean, Babylon collapses this very night. Persia takes over. Guess what happens to Daniel? Turn over to chapter 6, Darius the Persian. He appoints these governors, satraps, over his kingdom. And guess who is over the satraps? Three administrators, and one of them is Daniel. Now, it is said that Daniel developed a school of these magi. Now, how long that lasted, what was the result of it, we simply don't know. Philo, writing 500 years later, talks about a school of magi who were still following God and still being communicated to them by God, and maybe this group of magi came from that school. We simply don't know. What we do know is that the book of Daniel was read not only in Israel, but in Babylon and in Persia, and some men noticed something special about the stars and realized someone important had been born. And so they come. Notice the last phrase here. We saw a star when it rose and have come. One of the things that always amazes me is that how that God is always at work in places we don't expect. Drawing people to himself. And and the very first lesson I think we get about discipleship from Matthew chapter 2 is never underestimate who God is drawing to himself. I mean, God is working in and through us, but God is also working outside of us. He's working through nature. He's working through, in this case, the stars. God is always at work calling people to himself. I talked to a friend this last week who didn't grow up going to church. Didn't, family wasn't believers. When he got through with college, he, he got a job, and a guy that he worked with was a Christian and, and began to talk to him about church. And, and, and then he finally gave him a Bible and said, you might want to think about reading this. And sure enough, the guy simply takes his Bible, the New Testament, reads through it in one sitting, and decides he wants to become a Christian. I mean, God works in some amazing ways to draw people to himself. Never underestimate that. Now, notice what, what the wise men say. These magi say, we've seen this star in the east, and we've come to worship him. Worship is a huge theme throughout the book of Matthew. Last week, John talked about how that Jesus was called Emmanuel, God with us, chapter 1. God with us, Matthew 28, verse 20. You've got several of those themes that appear in the beginning of the book and then appear in the end of the book. Worship is one of them. 
And not just in the beginning and at the end, but in the middle. Notice Matthew 14, after the stealing of the wind that that was blowing after the feeding of the 5,000. I mean, the apostles are like, who in the world is this guy? And notice they worshipped him saying, truly you are the Son of God. The same guys at the very end meet on the mountain in Galilee. And notice the text there, when they saw him, they worshipped him. Worship is a huge theme in Scripture, and, and notice it's, it's directed toward Jesus. Our second lesson today, Jesus joins our Heavenly Father as being worthy of our praise and adoration. I mean, it's hard for me to understand this, but I remember a time in our fellowship where the question of, can you, can you worship the Son, can you worship the Spirit, or should all worship just go to the Father? And one of the things that becomes very clear in the text is that whether it's the Father, the Son, or the Spirit, they're God. And it's God who is worthy of our worship and adoration. So when the wise men appear wanting to worship the one born king of the Jews, boy, Herod, he goes bananas. By the way, notice up there, King Herod. He's the king of the Jews. How can there be one born king of the Jews? Now, the only problem with Herod being the king of the Jews is this. Herod's not Jewish. Herod's Idumean. Now, the Idumeans had been forced to be circumcised. Idumeans are descendants of Esau, not descendants of Israel. And so here is an Idumean who's assumed the throne as king of the Jews. And, of course, the Jews didn't accept him, and so there's constant friction He ended up marrying a Jewish princess, had children by her. And of course, once those children were born through a Jewish mother, Israelites, you know, the Jews there are like, okay, at least King Herod has legitimate sons who are worthy of the throne. And before long, rumors began to spread. Maybe Herod can be deposed and one of his sons who are legitimate Jews take the throne. If you know anything about Herod, you never threaten his throne. He ended up killing his wife, killing both of his 20-something-year-old sons, all because they were a threat to his throne. It was Augustus Caesar who quipped, it is better to be Herod's pig than his son. Boy, let that one sink in. I mean, all the way back in Rome, everybody knew how vicious Herod was. And so we find here someone who is ferociously opposed to whoever it is that's been born king of the Jews. And so he calls all the chief priests, teaches the law, and he says, where is the Messiah to be born? And then they quote from Micah chapter 5, 2, and 4, and they said it's in Bethlehem of Judea. And then they quote the text. And so what does Herod do? He, he calls the wise men in and says, I want y'all to go and find the one born king of the Jews. But what's astonishing to me is this. Why do none of the chief priests and teachers of the law go with the Magi to Bethlehem? I mean, here are these wise men saying, the king of the Jews have been born. Here's the teachers of the law, the priest. And they're like, yep, he's going to be born and it's in Bethlehem. Uh, you guys going? Nah, we got too much to do here. You know, we're busy taking care of the temple. We're busy, you know, dealing with matters of the law. 
And that leads us to our third lesson. Don't be surprised when religious leaders are not that excited about Jesus. It's easy for us who take a lead in Christianity to sometimes take our eyes off the Christ of Christianity. And that's just the truth. We get caught up in some type of hobby. We get caught up in one particular doctrine. We get caught up in one particular way of looking at things. And the next thing we've done is we've taken our eyes off Jesus. And let me just remind you that if someone says, what's the meaning of Christianity? It's one word, Christ. I mean, what's the purpose of the world? It's one word, Jesus Christ. Or, well, one word, Jesus. You know, remind me, that's two words. You know, Jesus is everything. We can't take our eyes off of Jesus. So here it says to the wise men, you go find him, tell me where he is, and I'll go and worship him. Yeah, right. But that's what he tells them. And so they followed the star. The star came to the house, as was mentioned by William a few moments ago. They're overjoyed. They go in and, and notice in the house, and they see the child and his mother Mary. And they can't believe it. Now, again, notice, in the house. This is sometime after the birth of Jesus. One of the problems in focusing on the wise men at Christmas time is we assume that these guys show up the night Jesus is born. And that's not when they show up. You know, we see nativity scenes all the time like this where Jesus is in the manger and here comes the wise men with their gifts. As if these, the shepherds and the wise men all come at the same time. That's not the way it happened. Again, Matthew talks of the Magi. Luke talks to the shepherds, and they're describing two different events. And so it's important that you not take those stories and kind of run them together. And so they come in, they open their treasures, and they present him with gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Now, can I ask you a question? Why? Why the gifts? I mean, what's going on? And you're like, well, he's, he's the king of the Jews. He's worthy of the gifts. That's true. But why? gifts like this, and, and, and what purpose will they serve? Well, we'll get to that question in just a moment. And having been warned in a dream, the Magi go back home a different way. One of the things, and John pointed this out last week, one of the things is, is that you have God revealing himself through dreams. Joseph had a dream, take Mary to be your wife. Now the wise men have a dream, don't go back the same way. Uh, Matthew 27, when Jesus is being crucified, Pontius Pilate's wife has a dream. You have dreams all over the place in Matthew's gospel. And God's communicating through those dreams. Don't miss that very important point as you're reading through the text. And notice, Joseph, as soon as the Magi leave, he goes to sleep and the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream. And the response is very quick, get up. Get the child, get the mother, get out. Why? Because Herod is fixing to try to take the child's life. And they have to get up literally this fast. I mean, they get up in the middle of the night and leave. And here's the question I want to ask. How did Joseph and Mary survive having been uprooted so quickly from their new home? I mean, they just settled in Bethlehem. Jesus is probably less than a year old. And all at once they're fleeing. And I guarantee you they didn't have much. Now they got even less. Whatever they had collected, they had to leave. Now you see why there's gold, frankincense, and myrrh. 
Because when you're fixing to take a quick trip to Egypt, you're going to need some resources. And that's what we learn about God, is that God is always faithful to those who are faithful to Him. I mean, if you think for one second God's going to leave His Son without the necessary means to take care, you be taken care of, that's not going to happen. And so when you read back through the text and you go, okay, why these gifts? You know, and of course people are, well, gold is about royalty and frankincense is about, you know, the priesthood and myrrh is about death. And, and we read a lot of meaning into the text and that meaning may be there. But I think the basic reason for the gifts is because this young family is going to need help as they flee from Herod. And so he got up and he took the child and stayed until the death of Herod. And so was fulfilled. What was written, what the Lord had said through the prophet, out of Egypt I call my son. We're going to have multiple prophets being quoted throughout the book of Matthew. And the word fulfill is a huge word. And, and, and I want you to think about it just for a minute. What does that word mean? Because here's one of the problems you have sometimes, and skeptics will throw this up at believers all the time. They'll say, wait a minute. He quotes from Hosea chapter 11, verse 1, but Hosea is not talking about the Messiah. Hosea is talking about Israel. Look at the text. When Israel, when Israel was a child, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son. This is talking about the Exodus. So how does Matthew come along and said this was fulfilled by Jesus coming up out of Egypt? And the answer to that question is the meaning of the word fulfilled. Let me give you a better way of looking at it. Take the letters and simply turn them around. What does fulfilled mean? It means to feel fuller. And basically what the Spirit does in Scripture is that sometimes the Spirit will find a passage in the Old Testament that had meaning in the ancient Old Testament times, but that he feels fuller with meaning in the life of Jesus. And so did God call Israel his son out of Egypt? Absolutely. But even fuller, he called his own son Jesus out of Egypt as well. But Peter goes on to tell, but don't, don't be shocked when you find out that there were prophecies, though, that even the prophets themselves couldn't figure out. I mean, they wanted to know what the Spirit of Christ was pointing to, and it wasn't revealed to them. In fact, even angels longed to look into these things and weren't allowed to. And so are there prophecies just about Jesus? Yes, I believe there are. But are there prophecies that were about things that happened in the Old Testament then filled fuller by things that happened in the New Testament? Yes. Jesus himself in Matthew 24 said, Listen, everything had to be fulfilled that was written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets and the Psalms, whether it's the absolute uh, prophecies or these prophecies that had what we oftentimes call double meaning. So don't be confused by different levels of biblical prophecies and fulfillments. And of course, Herod hears about it, realizes the Magi didn't, they're not going to come back. And so he furiously sends his troops in and they kill, slaughter all the boys two years old and under. It's one of the saddest stories of Bethlehem. Now, how many children were killed? We don't know. I suspect Bethlehem was a small village, a few hundred people, maybe a dozen, maybe a couple of dozen. We don't know for sure. But what we do know is an incredibly sad time. And what we need to realize, lesson number five, is that there will always be those who violently oppose God's ways and plans. That will always happen. 
Just out of curiosity, how many of y'all plan to watch the Super Bowl tonight? Anybody? Wow, that's more hands than number four in the number of women in Jesus' genealogy. June forces me to watch the Super Bowl every year. That's just something she does. So, you know, after, after study, there will be Bible study here if you're in our small group at five, but then we'll go home and watch the Super Bowl as well. If you watch the Super Bowl t- tonight, you're going to see two advertisements about Jesus in the Super Bowl. Multi-million dollar advertisements. It's the series called He Gets Us, of where they spell Jesus and then they take the U and S at the end and says, Jesus, he gets us. And if you want to see the furor that's caused, just, just Google that and look at the articles being written about it. People are, who are saying these Christians are trying to indoctrinate everybody with Jesus Christ. There's always going to be opposition to Jesus. Was then, is today. And so was fulfilled what was heard or written by Jeremiah Voices heard in Ramah, weeping in great mourning. Rachel weeping for her children, refusing to be comforted because they are no more. Jeremiah 31, 15. First applied to the Jews as they go into Babylonian captivity. Then applied to the Jews in Bethlehem who are slaughtered because of the birth of Jesus. Filled fuller in this particular text. And so Herod dies and in a dream he's told... Joseph is told, go back home. And so he gets up and he takes the child. But when he gets to Judea, he realizes that Archelaus, the son of Herod, is on the throne. And so warned in a dream, dream, he withdraws to the district of Galilee. And he went and lived in a town called Nazareth. And with that, you have so was fulfilled what was said through the prophets. He'd be called a Nazarene. Let me finish with just a note about this last verse. If you take your Bible and you open it up and try to find the fulfillment of this text, you're not going to find it. There's no verse in the Old Testament that says he'll be called a Nazarene. And a lot of skeptics will say, see, Matthew didn't know what he was talking about. But Matthew did know what he was talking about. Because Matthew, when he talks about prophecies being fulfilled, uses two formulas. The first formula goes this way. So was fulfilled what was spoken through the prophet, singular. And then he'll quote the text. But then he comes, I think it's four times, and he says, So was fulfilled what was spoken through the prophets, plural tense. And then he makes a point that is not specific to any Old Testament prophet. In other words, when he says, he'll be called a Nazarene, simply refers to what a Nazarene was in Jesus' day. In other words, you remember when Nathaniel found out that Jesus was Nazareth, he said, can there be anything good come out of Nazareth? Years ago, an African-American brother of mine came up to me and he said, Les, did you ever wonder why it took me so long to place membership at the church here? And I said, no. I mean, I knew it took you a while before. I mean, you visited for a while before you placed membership. What took you so long? He said, you don't know this, but the first Sunday I attended, you mentioned from the pulpit that you were from Mississippi. I'm serious. And he said, I'd always been taught everybody from Mississippi is a racist. And I wasn't going to go to the church where there were racists. 
especially the preacher. And he said, it took me several months to realize you weren't a racist. And I said, I'm glad you did. You see, sometimes where you're from causes a lot of people to think you're a certain type of person. Nazarenes were no ones. They were nobodies. Nothing came from Nazareth. And that was how Jesus wanted to be known as. The nobody who will save anybody at any time through the greatest gift in the world himself. If you have any needs today, whatever they may be, our shepherds are getting up right now. You'll see them standing up, heading toward the walls. If you have a need, just seek out one of our shepherds. They're both at the top as well, and they'd be happy to help you right now. Let's all stand as we sing.